All right, I'm going to start with a question this morning before we jump into the text, and I actually would love some response. And so slip your hand up. I just want to hear kind of a few from you guys. But what did you want to be when you grew up? Like when you were a bit younger, right, what did you want to be when you grew up? Just come on, let me just hear a few people. Football player. Too short, okay? Um, just kidding. Just kidding. Me too. Me too. Just kidding. I'm not, I'm not going to do that to everybody. It was like, I'm not going to raise my hand now. Sorry. <laughs> it was like, you're okay, jerk. Uh, right here. Dolphin trainer. Dolphin trainer. Ah, that's great. Okay. In the back. Magician. Magi- is that real? Magician. Wow. Okay. Anybody else? Yep. Oh, what? What is it? Herpetologist. Does anyone not him know what that is? Snakes? Study snakes. Oh, you kind of do that, though, as a hobby. You're a herpetologist hobby guy, okay? Anybody else? Let me get one or two more. Wealthy. Wealthy. Good. No, that's, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Finally, someone said it. Yeah. Veterinarian. Beautiful. I love that. Animals are great. Any last ones that just people really want to get out? What? You want to play in a band? You want to play in the NBA? Okay, cool. Got some sports people. I thought you said you wanted to play in the band. I'm like, you arrived. Um, yeah. A nun. Is that real? Awesome. Okay. And then you met him? Did Tiff, did Tiff ruin it for you? <laughs> That's beautiful. Okay, well, here's, here's why I asked the question, okay? Um, when I grew up, here was kind of my vision for my life. And, and this is not a joke. And even though many of you have stood by me when I've sung worship music, uh, my desire growing up was to be a country slash R&B star, okay? <laughs> right? Now, like, this was the vision for my life, and, and I love, I love, it's not, okay, it wasn't just the occupation, it was the lifestyle that came along with the occupation, right? What's that? You're feeling me, right? It was like boys to men was like, those were my guys, right? Some of you are like, boys to men, who's that? Those were my dudes, right? And so growing up, it was like, coolie high harmony was just my thing, and so, um, so I would literally, like, because this was the vision for my life and everything that it came along with being part of Boys to Men, um, like, all, all the wealth and the fame and singing to women every night and all that kind of stuff, I'm, like, eight, and I'm thinking this stuff, so it's just kind of messed up. Um, but I'd be in my room practicing, okay? So I don't know if you guys remember these old train whistles. They're made out of wood. They're, like, this big. They have four holes at the top, and they kind of look like a microphone, right? And so I had one of those, and so about an hour before bedtime, I would retreat to my room, and I would turn on my uh, CD player, and I'd crank it to Boys to Men, right? And I'd start singing Water Runs Dry, like, at the top of my lungs, right? I mean, I, it was like, it was all about me trying to become this, this great pop star, right? And here's the thing, is the reason why, there's a reason why I ask all these questions and I bring this up. It's because what we're going to talk about today is the maturity, is, is really the destination that we all should strive for, right? And, and it's not just a vocation, it's everything that comes along with that type of vision for life. And I think what happens when we grow up as kids, uh, we get this vision for what life should look like, what future should like, what our kind of lives should be marked by. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's very different from what Scripture is going to tell us our lives should be marked by. That the goal of our life that we oftentimes choose when we're a young kid is pretty different from the goal of Christianity and what it's trying to conform us to, make us into, and give us a vision for what maturity 
looks like. And so that's where we're going, okay? Um, building off the last couple weeks, I wasn't here, right? I was in Guatemala, so thanks so much. I think Seth was here with you guys a couple weeks ago and did a phenomenal job. And then Anthony again preached last week. I was actually somewhat nervous because those two are like really good friends. And I was like, man, I wonder, like, it's going to be a coup. Like, I'm going to come back and not have a job or something. Um, but they did a phenomenal job. And Anthony got to preach one of my favorite texts like ever last week, and it was talking about this idea that, listen, everyone here, if you're a Christian, you're in ministry, right? Like every member is a minister, that if you love Jesus, you're in ministry. So what I'm doing up here, this is not ministry, like this is my job as the pastor of this church, but we all do ministry. We all minister the gospel to the world. And so I just love that vision because that's how the church has to function if we are to even, as we'll talk about today, be built up into the likeness and image of Jesus. And so I love that text. Uh, and, and I think it's really important that we think through this through the lens of growth. So the expectation, so say you just got saved yesterday, the expectation for you to walk in the things of faith, the things that God is going to you, might be a little bit lower initially, right? Because you don't know a ton. So in other words, when Paul gets saved on the road to Damascus, he's blinded by this light. He has a confrontation with Jesus, and then he's sent to Antioch for two years to develop and train before he's sent out to be the greatest evangelist and church planner the world has ever known. Okay, so as you grow, as you learn, the expectations of what maturity means in a lived-out faith also rise. Well, we agree about that. Okay, so what we're going to look at today is not just this vision for maturity, but then what does that mean then? That if we truly adopt this vision, like if we individually and then corporately decide, you know what, maturity is not going to be defined by an occupation. Maturity is not going to be defined by wealth. Maturity is not going to be defined by these outward cultural realities, but rather something that God is crafting that is far bigger than that then what does that mean for us, okay? Uh, and so um, we're going to go and start in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand. We're going to bring you a Bible. If you do have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Don't feel weird about this. We pass out Bibles every week. Raise your hand high. We'd love to give you one. And if you don't own one, you do now. It's our free gift to you. So just slip that up and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. It's about three-fourths the way through your Bible, okay? Now, these two verses are the verses that Anthony finished up with last week, and I think in order for us to get the full picture of the calling of maturity on the life of the Christian, this is where we have to start. Okay, so here we go. Ephesians 4, verse 13 and 14 say this, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And so sometimes it's helpful to define something by what it's not. And so let's start there. There's a few things we get from verse 14 to say maturity for the Christian is not a few things, right? And the first one says, well, it, it's not being blown and tossed to and fro in our doctrine, in our knowledge, in our faith and belief about what Scripture says, about who God is, what it means to follow Him, right? And I know Anthony touched on this last week, but this has become an area of concern, I think, in the church today where we find ourselves here, a new wind blows in that tickles our ears, and all of a sudden we find ourselves here. 
Then a new wind, maybe from this direction, comes, and then all of a sudden we're here. It's as if there is no foundation. We have no backbone, church. Easily blown to and fro by the new cultural whims and cultural thoughts that shape us rather than us them. Now, now it's not just in doctrine, this human cunning, the deceitful and crafty schemes, these ways that exist that I think, if we're honest, are trying to tear apart the story that we have written within Scripture, rather that God has writing within his Scriptures. The true story of the world. They're trying to craft for you a story that they think is better than the one that God offers. And we see it all the time. The entire, we've talked about this often here, right? But the entire marketing world is based on the reality of trying to think that the story that you're currently living in is not good enough. And so let's create a better story for you to buy into. And then here's what they'll do. Here's the better story. And then here's the product that will get you to that better story. I mean, that's that's what every commercial is doing, right? The one we often talk about here is Axe Body Spray, right? They craft for you like this vision like, hey, you should have hordes of women around you at all times, right? And they're like, that's probably not happening for any of you until you have Axe Body Spray. Buy this and that will happen, right? Like every single commercial, you'll see that same theme. You don't have this yet. Buy our product. This will get you there. So they're trying to through human cunning, through these schemes to say, your current thing, not good enough buy into what we got for you, okay? So this reality is something that the church has to say no. Like, there has to be a point where the church says no. This is what we stand for. Like, this is what we're about. And, and listen, if, and here's, here's another thing. You can often, you'll start to see, and we'll often hear this from people. They'll say, well, can't you begin to see these cultural ways that are trying to tear down the church, specifically, right, like religious freedom here in America? Now, I, I just wonder something about that. Because when I read the scriptures, like this idea of religious freedom is not a guarantee amongst the Bible. In fact, the entire context of the New Testament is all outside of religious freedom. It was the exact opposite. It was get in line, we don't do that, we'll burn down your temple. And so even as we begin to see some of these human craftiness and schemes, we need not fret, church, We can stand strong and tall. Why? Because, listen, if they threaten to take away tax-exempt status, it's not like God all of a sudden stops being the sovereign God of the universe that provides all things. So so listen, like this this kind of tossing and, and worry and anxiety should not mark the church. That is not the mature response of the people of God. Now, I'm not talking your flinch emotion, and I'm not talking mine. Because that's a different thing, right? Like, we can't control that first thought, that first flinch. It just pops in our heads something we hear, our emotions do something. And then sometimes, listen, we try and you can't change that. What you can change is once it's out there, what do you do with it? And the Bible says, well, you're supposed to take every thought captive and surrender it to Christ. And so, church, what 13 and 14 are calling us to say biblical maturity is not allowing the culture to shape us, but rather the other way around. Based on Scripture, Right? And based on something very huge that we'll land on in about 20 minutes. Okay, so that's, that's 13 and 14. This is what we don't do. We're not, sh- we're not shaped and moved by that. So rather, we get in the beginning of verse 15 here. Rather, this is what biblical and Christian maturity is to look like. Ephesians 4:15 says this. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, if you didn't see where I was already going from the beginning, 
my hope is that whatever stage of life that you are in, that, that I am in, that when I say and I ask the question to myself, what do I want to grow up to be? The answer is Jesus. What do you want to be, Ian? Jesus, right? You get it, okay. You get it. Dane, what do you want to be? Tiff? Jesus. Like, so that, that should be the goal. Like, what do we want to be when we grow up, when we mature, when we have reached that pinnacle, which we will never reach this side of heaven? We want to be Jesus. Paul is saying, listen, church, the main pen, ultimate goal of your life is to mature into the likeness of Christ. That when you begin to close your eyes and you say, well, what, let, me, let me think through a vision of one year, five year, 10 year, 25, Lord willing, 50 more for me. And I close my eyes and I say, okay, what, what do I want to be at 85? I want to look more like Jesus then than now. Now that, so here's, if that is my goal is I want to look more like Jesus, guess what? It does not matter how much money is in the retirement account, Okay. If at 85, I want to look more like Christ, it does not matter which house I'm living in. Now, now hear me, all of these things, retirement account, you should have one. You're young, get one, start investing, don't be stupid, okay? That being said, there's good things. We just can't make those trump being like Christ, who is and must be the ultimate vision for the life of the Christian. But before I was saved, I'm like, amen to the wealthy, Right? Because when I got to college, wasn't a Christian, and I thought to myself, what do I want to do? Whatever makes money, okay? Like, whatever's going to bring it in, okay? So I got into computers, because I was like, well, that's the future, that's what's going And I hated it. I just absolutely hated it, because I like talking. And so just sitting there doing this would drive me crazy. And so I was like, well, then business, that'll do it, right? And so I was being shaped by a different story. And so this is oftentimes, instead of the Bible saying, don't do that. Instead, make the vision for your life, not a job, but a person. Would the vision of maturity for the life of the Christian be the person of Jesus? And all that comes along with that. We tell our interns, every time they start, and there's a handful of you in here, and... uh, and I think you believe me more at the end of the internship than when I say it at the beginning. But we tell all the interns at their orientation that our desire is to hopefully make you more like Christ by the time we get to May than you are right now in September. And so even though so there's parts of the internship that are boring and redundant and you wish you were doing more flashy, fun stuff, we don't care <laughs> if... It's helping shape you into the likeness of Christ, okay? We're not being rude, I don't think, right? We're not being jerks about it, but we're saying, no, no, no. Some of this just makes us more like Jesus, and that is the ultimate goal, okay? And and so this, let's talk Jesus for just a moment, because what I want to do is I want to talk about the life of Christ in three different stories, and I'll try and move through pretty quick for time's sake, that address all the, hey, don't look like this is in verse 14, Okay, so in verse 14, again, okay, we're not to be swayed by what? By doctrine, uh, by human cunning, or by the world's deceitful schemes. So let's just talk about Christ for a bit. If we're supposed to be him, we got to know him. Let's know some stories. So um, tossed around by false doctrine, let's talk about Jesus tempted in the desert. Matthew 4, 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. 
For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. If you don't know kind of the context of the story, Jesus retreats to the desert, is tempted by the devil three different times. Here in the second time, Satan craftily tries to come in and confuse Jesus, the guy who wrote scripture with scripture, and says, hey, Jesus, I know life's kind of hard for you right now. I know that you're tempted in the desert. I know that you're probably tired and you're hot and you're overwhelmed. Let's see if I can confuse you. And so he tries to use scripture in a distorted way to destroy Christ. But Christ, knowing truth, knowing doctrine well, fully founded in the word of God, says, no, 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 don't try and do that. I know what the word says. You cannot move me or shake me from the truth. And so what Jesus doesn't do, he doesn't destroy the devil in that moment. No. Instead, he confronts the devil with truth and then defeats him later on through death, through love. Okay? That's, that's story one. The second one, tossed around by human cunning, by the world trying to come in and slowly subvert the message of Christ. Right? So they try and subvert kind of our message, what we're supposed to be about, take us off track, if you will. Look at the story in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus is confronted with a woman who, who is drugged before him, who was just caught in adultery. And you have all of the uh, religious elite at the time kind of watching in. And they say, this woman has committed adultery, Jesus. According to the law, she must be stoned to death. What say you? Right? And so he's caught in a bit of a conundrum here. They're trying to, in cunning ways, try and catch Christ and destroy his message. Because the reality is, is there's, he, he's, was it, caught between a rock and a hard place, right? It's like the saying. I'm very bad at those, but that's the saying, okay? Because, listen, if he does, okay, take her life, he is going against Roman law, which says that a Jew could not, in that moment, condemn someone to death and kill them. Also within that, he's, he would be going even against Jewish law, but they didn't even that there was a, realize that because there was a feast going on that day, which it was illegal to also take life that day within Jewish law, but the religious elite seemed to forget about that one all of a sudden. But see, he would be also going against, <coughs> excuse me, the, Jew, uh, sorry, the, the Jewish law, right, if he doesn't kill her. And so he's caught between these two realities. If he doesn't take her life, then he's going against the law, which he says he has come to fulfill perfectly. And if he does kill her, then he's going against Roman law, and they will eventually catch him. And so what does he do? He kneels down. He writes something on the ground. We still don't know what it says. Probably something very amazing. Great question to ask Jesus when you get there, okay? And he looks up at the woman. I imagine he looks over at the guys, and he says, he who has no sin, be the first to cast a stone, okay? And one by one, all of the religious elite that are there drop their stones and begin to depart. And he kneels down to the woman, and he confronts her, and he says, is there anyone left to condemn you? She says, no, my Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, here's what's fascinating again about Jesus. Because okay, in that moment, what's he going to do now? He hasn't, he's gone against Jewish law now, right? Like, he, he hasn't gone. He's, he's going against. So how can he be the perfect fulfillment of the law if in this moment he goes against it? See, he does not in that moment destroy the woman, nor does he destroy the religious elite. Rather, he confronts them with truth. And then what? Later on, lays down his life to fulfill the law. Because death had to happen. He just put the death on his shoulders. 
And so he fulfills the law perfectly by becoming the death that she deserved, which is the story of the gospel. So later on, he defeats them, not by destroying them, but by death by love. Okay? The third one, last story. Tossed by the world's deceitful schemes, was there ever a greater scheme to tear down Christ or even in this world than the one concocted by Judas and Caiaphas and the religious lead of the time? That they go behind the back of Jesus. They give Judas, one of his trusted apostles, 30 pieces of silver, and he betrays Christ in the garden by kissing him on the cheek in one of the most devastating scenes in all of history. And what does Jesus do? Does he destroy Judas in that moment? Does he destroy the soldiers that had come to get him? Does he destroy Caiaphas? No. He confronts him with truth. In fact, when Peter, his closest apostle, goes and strikes the ear down of a soldier that is there, what does he say to Peter? He says, Peter, no, no, that's not what we do. He leans down to the soldier and somehow puts his ear back on, right? Which, it's Jesus, so this stuff gets normal, but just think for a second, he put a dude's ear back on. <laughs> like, that's fascinating, right? And later would defeat them, what? Through death by love. And so, and so what we begin to see is this pattern here, what? That maturity, if, if Jesus is the vision of maturity for the Christian, that there's a few things that seem to need to mark our lives that are very different from maybe the things that we often say, this is what maturity looks like today. I don't think it's based on age, although that helps. Some life experience is positive. It's not based on responsibility. It's not because now you have a job or you have a family, now you're mature. No, no that's, not, that's not the way it works. It's not these external things. What it seems to be marked by, by the life of Christ, is sacrifice. It, it seems to be this constant, like, laying down for the sake of the other. It seems to be this nonstop holding to the truth of God. Truth and sacrifice, truth and sacrifice. Do they mark us? Are, are those goals for your life? Do we teach those to our kids? Maybe, maybe give them a little bit, I guess. Maybe truth, we should. Sacrifice might be a bit much. But do we teach this as we disciple our people? Hey, you know what you should think about in your future? Like really holding on to truth and sacrificing your life for the sake of others. Okay. These things mark life Christ. And then lastly, we'll look at one more thing in just a moment. But in verse 16, it kind of transitions not just from the individual maturity of the individual Christian, but rather the corporate maturity of the corporate church. So in verse 16, let's read. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Jesus is building his church, and he is growing his church, and he is maturing his church. What is something that is required is that the church is working properly. Now, within context of what we studied last week and the weeks prior, there's two major implications to what it means for the church to be working properly. One is that we see already in this text and tied to last week's text that it's an all-hands-on-deck type of thing right? That this is not just, hey, there's a couple people over here that are doing all the ministry for the world. No, no. The church is doing the ministry for the world, and it includes all of us. Every member, a minister, you are all, listen, and I'm not, I don't know if all of you are Christians. So if you're here and not a Christian, you're exempt from that. 
Although I'm telling you, God wants you to be brought in, okay? But if you're a Christian and you love Christ, ministry is your thing, okay? You just do it in different vocations. You do it in different careers, and you do it in different places. Some of you do it out and about. Some of you do it at home. Some of you do it raising kids. Some of you do it uh, going to work from 9 to 5. Some of you have, it's just, it's all of it, all of it, okay? So, so that, that's one piece. It's, it's all hands on deck. And the second one, <coughs> it's all of us. Now, not, not just, it's not all of us just working. It's all of us together. And this ties into everything that we've been talking about probably over the last, what, five to six weeks about the reconciliation that we are supposed to have within the church across every dividing line, okay? Racially, gender, <coughs> ethnicity, okay? Socioeconomically, okay? At every level that the dividing walls have been torn down, the people of God are now, what, joined together, the scriptures say. If we are to work properly, the church must look like everything and all of us working together at the same time. And as that happens, the maturity of the church grows into the likeness of Jesus. And so I even ask us as a church, like, and this is something that me and the staff were always asking, like, does the church look like Jesus? Like, what's the reputation of Redemption Church? And, and listen, if it's defined by, like, Really handsome pastors, Avi. <coughs> you guys can't even laugh. You're like, no. Um, that's fair. I get it. If it's defined by a whole bunch of external stuff, man, let us shut this thing down. Okay? If it's if, you know, we put on, there's good music here. Man, that's great. I'm glad there's good music here. I also think it is. If that's a defining characteristic, okay, if that's like when people, their first flinch, great music. That's why you should go. Instead of, you know what, man? Like just, they just, they're Jesus. Like when I go there, I experience love. They seem to lay down their lives for each other. I see this engagement with one another. They preach truth. They talk and then live in dependence to God. Like these are the things. Like I want the things that people would initially say about Christ that they'd say about us. That's what maturity for us looks like. That's the goal for this church. Listen, we cannot be defined by, and too often this happens within church cultures. I'll be honest, my heart sometimes kind of goes to it, and I have to check it and say, no, we're not going there. Is Man, are we mature now because we can fill up this service during the summer, right? Because it used to be we would go from 125 to 9, okay? That's like, that's real. That actually happened, Okay? It was amazing. We had a service filled, then all the students left, and there were nine of us in a room, okay? We did a Christmas Eve service with the staff, which was our band, right? And then Haley and her brother, where, Ethan. I don't know why I called you her brother. At the point, we didn't know Ethan's name. We're like, oh, Haley brought her brother. Like, <laughs> like the, Brandon was there? Yeah, well, then Brandon was there too. Sorry, B. It was so, I, we could be like, hey, it's summertime and people are here. Now we've reached maturity. No. This is all, and I love you. This is all, this is all nothing if our hearts are not like Christ. We could fill the seats with all sorts of stuff, but if we're filled with a bunch of people and we're a type of church that won't lay our lives and our church and everything down for the sake of the other, those who are hurting, broken, and grieving in our world, then this is pointless. 
And I love gathering with you guys. I love singing. I love this. But I also, not even also, it has to be about this. It has to be about us becoming more like Christ, both corporately and individually. Now, um, the last point, you'll notice at the start of verse 15, in the end of verse 16, these two verses about the maturity of the Christian believer and the Christian church are marked by one major thing. Anyone guess what it is? Love, right? He starts with love in 15. He ends with love in 16. That he bookends maturity based on love, which I find phenomenal. Because oftentimes, again, what do we think through? We think through maturity. We think through external. And it's saying, I think the main primary beautiful thing about the maturity of the Christian church and individual growing into the likeness of Christ is discovering what it means to love like him. And so I want to read from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 13, and maybe the most famous wedding passage of all time, but it's also really good outside of that context, okay? And it says this, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. Tongues, they will cease. As for when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, here's the truth. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Ready? So now faith Hope and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I mean, if there's, are we marked by love? Like the love that is defined there in 1 Corinthians 13. Not, ah, no, I love you, right? Not the kind of casual love that equates, and I say this often, especially at weddings when we talk about love, and I talked about it here. The same love says, well, I love my wife, and I love a carne asada burrito, right? Like these things, oftentimes it is interchangeably, like and don't get me wrong, Carnage are really very good. <laughs> I'm not going to apply 1 Corinthians 13 to a Carnage of Rio, okay? But I am called to apply that to you and to my family and to every other soul made in the image of God. And how do we know that? Because that's what Jesus did. And how do we know he did that? Because he went to the cross. And even before that, he left his throne to come down here in all of this mess, to be with us, to, right, to come down off a throne, to then find himself kneeling next to a woman who has gone against every good thing he wanted for her life, and to lean down and say, I'm with you, and I love you, and I will die for you. That is what marks the life of the Christian. That's what maturity is. 
It doesn't matter what we do here. We could fill this. We could do something out there. It doesn't, okay, your individual life, you could say, well, I, well, I read my Bible today. But do you love? Are you marked by this reality? Okay. That's my hope for us. That's what we're going to pray for. And we have to do it. Hear me. This is not a rah-rah, although I'm passionate right now, run out of this room and say, I'm going to be more like Jesus' message. Okay? Because I've tried that. I know many of you have tried that. Much to failure about three days from now. Okay? The last point about Christ that I think defines the way we need to step into maturity, and it's perfect that it falls on Father's Day, is his ultimate and complete dependence on his Father. Why do you think he retreats over and over and over again? You think he didn't have stuff to do? He's Jesus. You didn't have people wanting his time? No, he said, hey, I got to go to the Father. And his dependence on his Father shaped his life. Prayer shaped his life. And it's only because his relationship with the Father that he could be in the Garden of Gethsemane and say, Father, I want this cup to pass. The answer to be no. And he says, all right, but not my will, but your will be done. Because he had a dependent relationship with his Father. That has to mark the life of the mature Christian. In fact, I believe it has to start there. To love and depend upon our Father who is in heaven, who gives us strength, who gave us truth, who gave us the gospel. And so if there is a takeaway, it's not leave here and be more like Jesus. Okay? My hope is depend on him, spend time with him, retreat with him, talk to him, get around people who are talking with him, right? So you constantly engage with him and the gospel. And I think what overflows is a life that images Jesus. A heart that feels like Jesus and a mind that thinks like Jesus. I'm going to pray for that now, so let's bow our heads. God, thank you. Thank you that you've come, that you walked amongst us. God, that we got to, um, we got to see you. And, and we get now to, to read and to believe and hear these stories passed down, God, of the way you walked on this earth. But, Lord, we don't, we don't just remember human Jesus. God, Jesus, we remember that you are king, you are God, and you came down here. Lord, we could study you and, and think about you for the rest of time, God, and, and never never be able to, to fully dig deep on who you are. But Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself more and more. I pray that we would see you, Jesus. We'd see your heart. We'd see your mind. We'd see your actions. We'd see your life. And God, we would seek to emulate because we are dependent on a God who has given us new life and a spirit that is interceding on our behalf, that is changing us and counseling us and making us new when we could not make ourselves new. Heavenly Father, our dependence is not on ourselves to be able to do well with this message. It's, it's fully on you to change us. 
We just pray we'd open up hands, we'd open up arms, and we'd let you take what you need to take, give what you need to give, change what you need to change, and use us, Lord, to be your light to the world. God, where there is your glory and our greatest joy. Thank you that you are the perfect, beautiful beacon of life and of maturity. We aim to be you, Jesus. Please teach us and shape us how to do so well and with longevity. The world would look to us as individuals and to the church and say, that just, that's love. That's a love this world does not know. That's a savior they need to know. And so come, Father. Bless us as we respond to you in worship and in praise, in prayer and giving. God, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.